Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1300, The Collapse of Craigie Suisse and the Shadows of Safe Haven. This is being recorded on May 26th of the year 2023. Before getting into the main body of the program, several notes. Uh, first of all, please do check the SpitfireList.com website on a regular basis for, among other things, the expert comments that are posted by our contributing editor, Pirafract, that's P-P-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L. They are an invaluable body of information. Many other listeners also contribute uh, excellent comments from time to time. Podcasts are, for many people, the best way of consuming the For the Record broadcasts. Sister Station, WFMU, is podcasting For the Record. There is a link at the top of each written For the Record description and at the top of each Food for Thought post which, if you click on it, will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts. Also, everything on the SpitfireList.com website, all of my almost, uh, well, 44 years plus on uh, the air, written and recorded, plus a mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files, is available on a 32-gigabyte flash drive. Basically, everything on the SpitfireList.com website is available on the flash drive. That will be updated very shortly, and will uh, include the current material. Uh, the uh, flash drive is available for a very nominal fee, and I get no money whatsoever from this. I suppose uh, that could be considered to be proof that my worst critic's assertions, which is that I'm out of my mind, is accurate. Uh, getting no money from a, the better part of a half century of one's own work uh, might fit the definition of insanity. In our five-part series called The End and the Beginning, Parts 1 through 5, uh, we focus in considerable measure on family Schwab, uh, that is the family of Klaus Schwab. They were, in, they were involved with a firm called Escher Weiss, nominally a Swiss firm labeled Salzburg Escher Weiss, that worked for the Third Reich. They used uh, Third Reich slave laborers, and they were involved with generating nuclear technology for the fledgling Third Reich atomic bomb effort. And then later, when Klaus Schwab worked for them, they were involved with the apartheid South Africa effort to obtain an atomic bomb. That relationship uh, is... Indicative of the profound relationship between Swiss capital and the capital of Nazi Germany. Uh, many people, no doubt, find my discussions of the Bormann organization to be uh, far-fetched or repetitive or what have you. Uh, that is because the Bormann group controls the cartel system. Since the period between the two world wars, uh, cartels have been the dominant element in international politics, uh, eclipsing the nation-state per se. And the Bormann Network, which grew out of the Nazi flight capital program uh, at the end of World War II, really was begun before World, the end of World War II, uh, in effect gave them control over the cartel system in the post-war years. There was an attempt 
After predicting the Nazi flight capital program, it was called Operation Safe Haven. It was nominally uh, headed up by the U.S. Treasury Department and uh, then Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau. It also had many, many opponents. Uh, there have been many things shaking the international financial system lately. Uh, obviously, there are tremors going through both, I guess, the bobbies and the, the investments of uh, many people with regard to the ongoing negotiations to uh, raise the debt limit. There have also been tremors going through the international financial system uh, after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the troubles of First Republic Bank, and also the tremors that ultimately brought down Credit Suisse in Europe, leading to the Union Bank of Switzerland to purchase that troubled bank. What we are going to do in this broadcast is to take a look at an aspect of the collapse of Credit Suisse uh, that has not received much attention, and that is that it appears that Credit Suisse had, among other things, been holding accounts that were used for the the Nazi post-World War II diaspora. A lawyer, Mr. Borowski, B-A-R-O-F-S-K-Y, who had headed the investigation into those accounts, was fired, and uh, the the firing generated uh, some scrutiny by a congressional banking committee. We're going to talk about that right now reading an article from the Western Print Edition of the New York Times of Wednesday, April 19th of 2023. This is an article titled, Reports Accuse Craigie Suisse of Impeding Hunt for Accounts Linked to Nazis. It's by Charlie Savage. And looming very large in the background here is not only the Nazi diaspora, Operation Safe Haven, and the remarkable and deadly Borman network that I believe will prove to be the dominant element in human affairs on this planet. The article is by Charlie Savage, and it reads as follows. The troubled banking giant Credit Suisse is facing new accusations that it has not been fully forthcoming about the scope of its historical assistance to Nazis a quarter century after it agreed to take part in a $1.25 billion settlement of lawsuits by Holocaust survivors. The Senate Budget Committee on Tuesday released two reports it was obtained from an inquiry that Credit Suisse commissioned into banking activities by German Nazis who went to Argentina in the 1930s. One of the reports was written by Neil M. Borowski, a lawyer the bank hired to oversee the investigation, but dismissed in November after its scope expanded to Nazis who fled Europe at the end of World War II. The committee received a copy of the report once it issued a subpoena for it last month as Credit Suisse petered on collapse. Quote, Credit Suisse's decision to stop its review midstream has left many questions unanswered, including questions about the thoroughness of its prior investigative efforts, the extent to which it served Nazi interests, and the bank's role in servicing Nazis fleeing justice after the war, Mr. Borowski wrote. The dispute shows that, eight decades after World War II, the understanding of how Swiss banks provided financial assistance to Nazis is still incomplete. The topic also remains deeply contentious, 
adding that the turbulence Credit Suisse has faced in recent weeks amid the global banking panic that led to its rival UBS to agree to buy it for about $3.2 billion. The Budget Committee began an investigation at the Simon Wiesenthal Center, a Jewish human rights group named for a famed Nazi hunter, contacted Senator Charles E. Grassley, the top Republican on the committee in February, about what had happened. In a statement on Tuesday, Quebec Suisse said Mr. Borowski's report contained, quote, numerous factual errors, misleading and gratuitous statements, and unsupported allegations that are based on an incomplete understanding of the facts. The bank strongly rejects these misrepresentations, unquote. The statement did not specifically identify any mistakes. Through a spokesperson, Mr. Borowski declined to comment. In discussions with the committee, representatives of the bank denied any wrongdoing and said it was committed to pursuing the historical truth of what happened, people familiar with the matter said. The bank also portrayed its decision to fire Mr. Borowski as a commercial dispute, not an attempt to impede the investigation. The underlying inquiry by a forensic accounting firm, it said, continued under the oversight of a different lawyer. The bank produced its own 22-page account of events in March. After reviewing findings that it said, quote, supplement but do not materially alter the information already available in the published historical record, unquote, the report stated, quote, Credit Suisse has concluded that no further measures are currently warranted regarding the issues, unquote, that the Simon Wiesenthal Center had raised. But after the Senate Committee's investigation, the bank agreed last week that it would scrutinize an additional list of names the center had gathered of people associated with a clandestine network that helped Nazis escape Europe after World War II. This is critical here. But after the Senate Committee's investigation, the bank agreed last week that it would scrutinize an additional list of names the center had gathered of people associated with a clandestine network that helped Nazis escape Europe after World War II. This is not only Safe Haven, but the Nazi diaspora, uh, the Galen organization, the Vatican Ratlines, the Project Paperclip scientists, and so many of the things that I speak about here in addition to the Borman Network, which was uh, described to the heroic Paul Manning uh, by one banker as the largest concentration of money power under a single control in all of history. Continuing, in a statement, Mr. Grassley said that Crazy Suisse, despite initially agreeing to investigate, had, quote, established an unnecessarily rigid and narrow scope, unquote, refused to follow leads, removed Mr. Borowski, and insisted on redacting portions of the report he had turned over. Why, if they were in fact redacted, why were they redacted? We're talking about things that happened 80 years ago, or so we're told. Many Germans relocated to Argentina in the years before and after World War II, including a number of Nazis who fled Europe amid Adolf Hitler's downfall. In 2020, the Simon Wiesenthal Center announced that it had uncovered information about Germans living there in the 1930s, which might help identify additional accounts linked to Nazis. 
Executives at the time agreed to investigate assets deposited with a bank that became part of what is now known as Credit Suisse and hired an international forensic accounting firm, Alex Partners, to do so. Alex is A-L-I-X. The bank later appointed Mr. Belofsky as an independent overseer of the inquiry to give the center greater confidence, the people said. Mr. Belofsky, of the New York law firm Jimmer and Block, is a former prosecutor who was the inspector general for the $700 billion troubled assets relief program, the bank bailout response to the 2008 financial crisis. In selecting him, Credit Suisse went with a familiar figure. Since 2014, he has served as an independent corporate monitor for the bank after it pleaded guilty to helping American clients evade taxes. In the 1990s, Swiss banks underwent major investigations that sought to uncover and grapple with their past financial assistance to Nazis and to identify any remaining assets belonging to victims of the Holocaust. The banks hoped that scrutiny and the banks hoped that scrutiny and the restitution that Credit Suisse and UBS agreed to pay in 1998 had put the matter behind them. Before he was fired, Mr. Bolofsky did not definitively identify any Nazi-linked accounts that were still open, according to the documents. But the work was not complete, and he had uncovered accounts that Nazis had used that were not disclosed during the investigations of the 1990s, though some bank representatives uh, contested some aspects of his report. Now, note, it talks about some of the accounts held by various people, but even though the world, the, the, the main military combat of World War II ended in 1945, almost eight decades ago, none of these people is named, assuming they were at least 25 years of age at that time, which is a reasonable assumption. They would be 103 today. Most of them probably aren't alive, why aren't they named? That, I think, is very significant here. Now, about some of these accounts. Information about an account controlled by a Nazi SS officer who was the representative of a holding company for SS firms that exploited Jews economically was, quote, among the working papers that were compiled during the bank's prior investigations in the 1990s, Mr. Bolofsky wrote. He portrayed that finding as conflicting with Credit Suisse's assertion in 2001 that it found nothing in its archives indicating a relationship with the holding company. Representatives for the bank denied any cover-up, stressing to the committee that it was an historian there who called attention to the account record that people familiar with the matter said. Mr. Bolofsky also wrote that the bank helped a Nazi-linked businessman restructure a company that would today be valued at several hundred million dollars so its assets would not be confiscated, and the bank later used the entity to pay bonuses to bank executives. Bank representatives emphasized to the committee that the restructuring was to hide the assets in the 1930s when the businessman eventually broke with the Nazis, not during or after the war, and that the bank had bought out his share before the bonuses. The investigation also started to scrutinize accounts opened from 1952 to 1990 by a Nazi scientist who had been imprisoned during the Nuremberg trials and an account closed in 2002 that had been held by a Nazi commander who had been tried and sentenced at Nuremberg. 
But as the investigation unfolded, Cleve Sleese replaced the general counsel who had been in place when his inquiry was established, Romeo Ceruvi, C-E-R-U-T-T-I, with a new top lawyer, Marcus Detelm, D-I-E-T-A-T-L-M, who began a review of the bank's major engagements. In June of 2022, Mr. Borowski briefed Mr. Beethelm about the investigation. Soon after, Mr. Beethelm ordered Mr. Borowski and Alex Partners to pause their work. Bank officials later told the committee that Mr. Beethelm restarted Alex Partners' work in October, but the relationship between Mr. Beethelm and Mr. Borowski soured, and Mr. Borowski was fired in November. He completed his report after being terminated. The bank hired a London-based lawyer at the firm Clifford Chance, Luke Palini, P-O-L-A-I-N-I, to replace Mr. Bobowski. In February, Mr. Glassley said the budget panel's chairman, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island, opened an investigation. Underlining the fraught nature of the investigation, senior Cravey Suisse officials, including Mr. Beethelm, flew to Washington to meet with the committee about the issue on April 7th, even as the bank was talking to UBS about its future, the people familiar with the matter said. The committee also pressed Cravey Suisse about one of the issues Mr. Borowski flagged. Why? It did not look for any accounts linked to a list of hundreds of names of people involved in a clandestine network that smuggled Nazis out of Germany after the war. One more time, the committee also pressed Craby Suisse about one of the issues Mr. Borowski flagged, why it did not look for any accounts linked to a list of hundreds of names of people involved in a clandestine network that smuggled Nazis out of Germany after the war. Cleve Suisse sent a letter to the committee saying that it would investigate the list after all the, the people, one more time. Cleve Suisse sent a letter to the committee last week saying it would investigate that list after all the people familiar with the matter said. In a statement, the center questioned the credibility of any future inquiry if it is not independent of Cleve Suisse, saying the bank's decision to remove Mr. Borowski had eroded its, quote, confidence in a fair, independent and transparent historical review, unquote. Still, Mr. Grassley and Mr. Whitehouse praised the bank's pledge to expand its investigation and said they would keep an eye on it. We commit to seeing this investigation through, Mr. Whitehouse said, again quoting the fact that Craby Suisse had agreed to expand the scope of its initial investigation in response to the committee's investigation demonstrates the power of congressional oversight of corporate malfeasance. It is very hard to read that last paragraph without guffawing or choking or laughing out loud. The fact that uh, we commit to seeing this investigation through, Mr. Whitehouse said, the fact that Craig B. Suisse had agreed to expand the scope of its initial investigation in response to the committee's investigation demonstrates the power of congressional oversight of corporate malfeasance. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not even going to comment any more on that. Now, several points to underscore. We'll come back to that. None of the people holding these accounts was identified by name. One is a Nazi SS officer. One is a Nazi-linked businessman who later turned against the Nazis. I am wondering if that might be Fritz Thiessen, one of the earliest 
uh, supporters of Adolf Hitler who officially turned against the Nazis. The uh, Pieson family is one of the main components of the Borman network, and Fritz Pieson was heavily involved with George Herbert Walker and Prescott Bush Sr., the great-grandfather and grandfather of George W. Bush, and the father and grandfather of George H. W. Bush. And again, by the way, there's a good discussion of Fritz Thiessen in the book The Nazis Go Underground from 1944 that's available on the, uh, the, the Spitfire List website and or the flash drive. Also noted here is uh, an account uh, from Nihild from 1952 to 1990 by a Nazi scientist who had been, been imprisoned during the Nuremberg trials. Many of those Nazi scientists ultimately went to work for Project Paperclip as we've looked at in many programs, including for the record 11-23. Uh, looming in the background of this is Operation Safe Haven. That was an attempt by the Treasury Department and other allied uh, agencies uh, in the closing years of World War II to interdict the Nazi flight capital program that became the seed for the remarkable and deadly Borman flight capital organization. Again, described by one banker to Paul Manning as the largest, the greatest concentration of money power under a single control in all of history. What we're going to do is to take a look at Operation Safe Haven, and we're going to take a look at Craig Suisse's role in uh, the holding of Nazi capital during World War II. To do that, we're going to take a look at the book Nazi Gold by Tom Bauer, and that was published in softcover by Harper Perennial and uh, copyright 1997 uh, by, in 1997 and 1998 by Tom Bauer. Now, of Operation Safe Haven and the opposition to that, uh, then Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau proposed a, basically a deindustrialization of Nazi Germany. This was fiercely opposed by many powerful people in Wall Street and in the city of London. And uh, ultimately, as we'll see, uh, in order to save their own necks from prosecution at Nuremberg, many of these same uh, powerful American industrial and financial figures uh, helped to beat six op- Operation Safe Haven. Turning to Nazi Gold by Tom Bauer, we read, Speaking of the tensions that arose between government agencies because of Safe Haven, those tensions coincided with the Crusaders obtaining increasing evidence of Switzerland's willful collaboration with the Nazis. Few were more pertinent than a report from a, quote, reliable, unquote, French intelligence source circulated in Washington in November of 1944 about a secret meeting held on the eve of the liberation of Paris. On August 10th, 1944, parenthetically, uh, we go into this uh, meeting uh, called the Red House Meeting, at great length in the, uh, for the record, 305, about the Borman Group. It is also available in uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, one of the books that is available for free on the SpitfireList.com website and on the flash drive. 
On August 10, 1944, representatives of Germany's industrial giants, including Krupp, Messerschmitt, and Rheinmetall, had met senior SS officers at the Hotel Wilteshaus in Strasbourg. Their purpose was to discuss the very plan that Sam Klaus had anticipated. Senior Nazi party officials had admitted that the war was lost and urged that the new strategy was to survive and win the peace. Large sums of money should be sent abroad in secret in the care of sympathetic bankers and industrialists. Among the named Swiss banks were the Basler Handelsbank and Kraby Suisse. Eventually, according to the plan, that money would be used to finance the Nazi party's attempt to build a new empire. Emphasizing the importance of cloaking the German deposits to make them seem, quote, absolutely independent, unquote, the SS's expert insisted that success depended upon restricting knowledge of the plot to a few people. The rewards, the SS officer promised his audience, would follow once the party had rebuilt its strength. State Department analysts did not doubt the credibility of the report. Captured German documents suggested that the Nazis' post-war plans were already in operation and others were, quote, ready to be launched on a widespread scale immediately upon termination of hostilities in Europe, unquote. The department's briefing continued, quote, It is clear that the Germans have done everything within their power to help build up in the neutrals, an impressive financial stake which can be used to revive Germany's industrial and military potential after the war. By false invoicing, stockpiling goods in Switzerland, transferring funds under apparently innocent guises of dummies, unquote, and, quote, cloaks, unquote, and deferring payments on phony contracts, the Germans have secreted their loot. To frustrate that plot and overcome Switzerland's continuing stubbornness, on December 6th, 1944, shortly after the Red Army consolidated its advance toward Germany, the State Department circulated its first definition of safe haven. The proposal, officials explained, was to register all known enemy assets outside Germany and survey enemy individuals and their activities around the world if they might be part of an attempt by Germany to preserve economic, political, or military potential. In early January of 1945, as new intercepts revealed that Swiss banks, especially Credit Suisse, were regularly transferring German loot and gold to Argentina, new drafts of the Safe Haven program outlined the Crusaders' intention to surround, intimidate, and virtually invade neutral countries, especially Switzerland, to root out the Germans and their loot. Skipping down. The Swiss Bankers Association was not inclined to make the task any easier. No Swiss banks, declared an official on the day that the State Department policy was published, again quoting, have ever carried out or collaborated in the transfer abroad of funds belonging to the leaders of the National Socialist Party, unquote. That disclaimer was accompanied by a protest by the Bankers Association to the Allies and the suppression in Switzerland of news reports from Washington explaining why $1.9 billion of Swiss assets were frozen in the United States. Walter Scholes, S-H-O-L-E-S, the American consul in Basel, concluded, quote, 
it is quite evident that Swiss bankers have no intention of taking the Swiss public into their confidence in matters affecting Swiss banking practices. The Swiss public continues to remain in the dark on the general subject, unquote. The frustration among Treasury and State Department officials was turning to anger. In October of 1944, Switzerland had imposed an embargo on exports of war material and frozen some bank accounts in German-occupied countries to prevent the compulsory transfer of possessions to the Nazis, but, protested U.S. Treasury officials, these were meaningless, even insulting gestures, since the Wehrmacht had now abandoned those countries. In confirmation of Swiss nonchalance, the government in Bern had even rejected during January an Allied offer of raw materials from scarce stockpiles if Switzerland reduced trade with Germany. The offers were ignored. Switzerland still permitted Germany to transport military cargo along its rail network to Italy to be used against Allied soldiers, claiming it was bound by the St. Gotthard Convention. Similarly defiant, it granted Germany loans knowing there was no chance of repayment, while the German companies supplying coal and steel were allowed to amass Swiss francs and Swiss bank accounts for use after the war. Switzerland's bankers were confident that the Allies would never discover the secrets because most important German deposits had been registered under Swiss names. The duplicity was not overlooked by Morgenthau and his disciples. Even as they observed Barron's pretense of complying with Washington's requirements, they read a new batch of intelligence reports from Europe contradicting Swiss assurances. Their antagonism was inflamed. The reports from Switzerland described convoys of trucks traveling from Munich and Nuremberg carrying, quote, large sums, unquote, of money and securities to Swiss banks and the German sanatoria in Davos. Echoes of the, the Schwab family. Other reports mentioned widespread looting by the SS and their transfer of stolen property to Switzerland. Skipping down. Reports from both Sweden and Switzerland mentioned a flood of German patent applications, and from Madrid there was a report that 14 crates of stolen furs sent from Paris had arrived via Switzerland. In Washington, the safe haven officers were convinced that the continent was awash with gangsters, but there was a dearth of real information. Groping in the darkness, the investigators knew that one group in Europe could by themselves stymie Nazi criminality, and they were outraged by their mixture of venality and sanctimoniousness. Switzerland's refusal to cooperate in the final defeat of the Nazis infuriated Morgenthau. At the Secretary's behest, Roosevelt dispatched Rockland Curry, the FEA's Deputy Administrator, and a new dealer with Orvis Schmidt to Europe. Although uninvited by the Swiss, they were ordered to arrive in Bern and extract compliance with a list of demands. Both shared the Treasury's uncompromising attitude, although by now, Harry Dexter White's proposals for reprisals against Switzerland had become draconian. In his bid to destroy German power, White was unapologetically prepared also to cripple Switzerland if the government in Bern refused to obey U.S. demands. 
without threat, White believed, it was, quote, futile, unquote, to expect the Swiss to reveal and control German assets. Sanctions were the only language the Swiss would understand. To intimidate them, White proposed cutting their coal supplies and even pushing the country toward bankruptcy by permanently freezing their $1.9 billion assets in the United States. His ideal solution, he told Morgenthau, would be to advance loans to friendly American investors to buy control of Switzerland's leading banks. Morgenthau did not demur, beginning again, Morgenthau did not demur, even at that outlandish notion. White's aggression mirrored the common sentiment within the building. One obstacle Morgenthau knew remained. The senior State Department officials opposed to to safe haven. Despite endorsement from many departments, including a letter from General Clayton Bissell, B-I-S-S-E-L-L, the Chief of Military Intelligence in the Pentagon, urging that safe haven was, quote, of utmost importance, unquote, the State Department remained cool. Morgenthau suspected that London's influence should not be underestimated. We're going to talk about some more influence in a minute. Filled with moral outrage and ready to punish the Swiss, Curry arrived in London on February 1st, 1945, to receive an unpleasant surprise. The British were less than lukewarm about joining the mission. Wearied by the discomforts of wartime, lacking the passion of the Crusaders, and short of the kind of talented intellectuals recruited by Morgenthau's Treasury Department, officials in Whitehall remained incurably skeptical about safe haven. Um, skipping down. Unspoken was British concern about the Crusaders' attitude toward Swiss banks. Reports from Switzerland about arguments between British and U.S. intelligence officers concerning the treatment of the Johann Verley Bank in Zurich revealed deep disagreements. The basic facts were not in dispute. And uh, so... Again, looming in the background of these accounts uh, that were uncovered in Crédit Suisse and uh, that were the subject of contention uh, overlaps the Nazi diaspora, both the physical diaspora of the personnel and also, even more importantly, perhaps the financial diaspora as well. And overlapping that diaspora is not only the Galen spy organization, which was included into the CIA, the Project Paperclip scientists, which were incorporated into the U.S. defense industry, also the, again, remarkable and deadly Borman capital organization that grew out of the Nazi flight capital program and the frustration, the interdiction of Operation Safe Haven. One of the dominant considerations in not only this program, but in the New York Times article that I read and in discussions of the Borman Group, which I can appreciate that some people will appear to be, well, arcane, irrelevant, what have you, uh, fundamental to that is the fact that 
the Nazi capital, like very much the capital of uh, Imperial Japan during World War II, was not in any way separate from American capital. There is a very important introduction to the books for download. I read it into the record in the series The End and the Beginning, parts 1 through 5, and it talks about uh, globalization. Basically, to make a very long story very short, most people think globalization is a recent phenomenon. One could argue it went all the way back to the uh, British East India Company, but in, in a modern sense, globalization really began with the reinvestment abroad of the tremendous wealth that was generated by the U.S. industrial boom of the Roaring Twenties. It was invested not so much in American industry, but in that of of Germany, soon to become Nazi Germany, uh, Italy, and Japan. Uh, The power, the military power that swept over much of Europe and much of Asia during the Second World War was the transmogrified capital from the American industrial boom of the 1920s, uh, which was uh, basically facilitated by the Webb-Palmerine Act. That was a an, a, an article that was an accept, basically a loophole, provided a loophole in the Antitrust Act, and it permitted the formation of cartels, international monopolies. Uh, that globalized capital not only led to... Uh, the overrun of much of Europe and Asia during World War II, it also was a major factor in leading to the Great Depression. To make a very long story very short, the only way that capitalism can work is if capital is invested in such a way as to generate more capital. And because so much of the capital that was generated by the industrial boom of the Roaring Twenties was invested abroad, it was a major factor in leading to the collapse of the U.S. economy, and that, of course, uh, resulted in the Great Depression. Now, one of the things that looms large in the interdiction of safe haven and uh, the events that we have been discussing, and that is the fact that it was American corporations, American financial institutions, American industrial firms that were deeply involved with not only Nazi Germany, but fascist Italy and Imperial Japan, particularly Nazi Germany. We went into that in many programs, including Uncle Sam and the Swastika. There's a long miscellaneous archive show involving the original Uncle Sam and the Swastika broadcast from May 23rd, 1980, and many supplemental broadcasts recorded over the years. That is on the SpitfireList.com website in the miscellaneous uh, archive shows section. It also obviously is available on the flash drive as well. One of the things that I want to note, again, in the New York Times article from which we read, although World War II ended in 1945, at least the conventional military combat ended in 1945, uh, none of these individuals is named. They are described, but they're not named. Why aren't they named? One of them a Nazi SS officer who was the representative of a holding company for SS firms that exploited Jews economically. 
was, quote, among the working papers that were compiled during the bank's prior investigations in the 1990s. And still later, Mr. Bobowski also wrote that the bank helped a Nazi-linked businessman restructure a company that would today be valued at several hundred million dollars so its assets would not be confiscated, and the bank later used the entity to pay bonuses to bank executives. Bank representatives emphasized to the committee that the restructuring was to hide the assets in the 1930s when the businessman eventually broke with the Nazis, not during or after the war, and that the bank had bought out his share before the bonuses. The investigation also started to scrutinize accounts opened from 1952 to 1990 by a Nazi scientist who had been imprisoned during the Nuremberg trials and an account closed in 2002 that had been held by a Nazi commander who had been tried and sentenced at Nuremberg. Why aren't these people named? And in particular, uh, the German businessman who broke with the Nazis sounds very much like Fritz Thiessen, again, one of the earliest financiers of Adolf Hitler, and the man who was a business partner with George Herbert Walker, Prescott Bush Sr., they are the great-grandfather and grandfather of George W. Bush and the father and grandfather of George H. W. Bush, for whom the CIA headquarters is named. I, again, I've talked, spoken about the Borman Network in many programs. The brilliant and important book by the rape heroic Paul Manning, Martin, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, is available for download for free on the SpitfireList.com website. I would also recommend the book uh, The Nazis Go Underground by Reese, published before the Normandy invasion in early 1944 for good discussion of Fritz Thiessen. And there's discussion of the profound role of the Thiessen family in the Borman Network in the Road to Lugano for the Record programs. Now, one of the aspects of Operation Safe Haven that made it so controversial or really so threatening to the powers that be in Wall Street and in the corridors of economic and financial and political power in uh, around the world was the fact that the plan existed. We've spoken about this, by the way, in some of our discussions with uh, the heroic John Loftus, an investigator with the Office of Special Investigations, the plan was to put some of the Nazi industrialists and financiers in the defendant's dock at Nuremberg and to scrutinize the documents about their involvement with the Third Reich and then to have them basically roll over on their American counterparts. Had Operation Safe Haven gone through, many of the most powerful names in American politics and industry and finance would have been in the defendant's stock at Nuremberg. This is really important. Uh, one of the things we have spoken about uh, is the fact that Alan Bellis uh, of the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm, one of the law firms deeply involved in the uh, capital that was invested in Nazi Germany, both John and uh, John Foster and Alan Bellis were partners at Sullivan and Cromwell. They even became, respectively, Secretary of State and Director of the CIA under Eisenhower. 
Alan Bellis was head of the Bern Switzerland OSS office, and he ultimately learned of Operation Safe Haven and alerted the Swiss intelligence. Well, actually, he, he learned about Operation Safe Haven, and one of the sources for his information was a man named Charles Brugmann. Charles Brugmann was the Swiss ambassador to the United States, and his brother-in-law was Henry Wallace, who was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's vice president. As, as the removal of Henry Wallace and the uh, his replacement by Harry Truman has been much discussed. I do not know whether uh, the indiscretion that Henry Wallace committed when he basically... Uh, revealed to Charles Brugman the safe haven operation had anything to do with his removal. But although Henry Wallace was a very admirable politician, in my uh, opinion, in many ways, he uh, was, shall we say, indiscreet about some of his social arrangements. Again, he was, his brother-in-law, Charles Brugman, was the, the Swiss ambassador to the United States. A very important book. You want to talk about the Nazi diaspora post-World War II. That diaspora almost certainly included Adolf Hitler himself. A book that was the focal point of a pair of interviews that I gave with one of the authors, I believe off the top of my head, that was for the record 914 and 915, two interviews with Gerard Williams. A book is called Grey Wolf, subtitled The Escape of Adolf Hitler. Uh, it is a remarkable book, and uh, Martin Borman uh, allegedly played a significant role in the escape of Adolf Hitler. So, too, did Alan Bellis, according to the authors of this book. And uh, we are going to read an excerpt of Grey Wolf, again subtitled The Escape of Adolf Hitler. There also was a series on cable television, I don't no, if it was on HBO, off the top of my head, I don't watch television and haven't for many years. But it was called The Hunt or The Search for Adolf Hitler, and indeed Gerard Williams was heavily involved with that, with the making of that uh, series. And again, I interviewed, it was my pleasure and privilege to interview Gerard Williams in two broadcasts for the record 914, and 1915, uh, for the record, 914 and 915. And of Operation Safe Haven and the indiscretion committed by Henry Wallace when he revealed this to his brother-in-law, Charles Brugmann, the Swiss ambassador to the U.S., we read, While the Allied armies were still rampaging across Northwest Europe, creating the deceptive prospect of peace before Christmas of 1944, the Roosevelt administration was laying plans for the structure of a post-war Germany. Both President Roosevelt and his long-time Secretary of the Treasury, Henry J. Morgenthau, Jr., were vehemently anti-Nazi and had little regard for the Germans as a nation. For months, they had deliberated over a plan for a demilitarized Germany that would never again be able to wage war. The country was be, to be divided into northern and southern zones that would be completely deindustrialized, unquote, 
and turned over solely to agriculture in order to feed the German people on a subsistence level. In Roosevelt's words, quote, There is no reason why Germany couldn't go back to 1810 where they would be perfectly comfortable but wouldn't have any luxury, unquote. The industrial world was to be administered as an, as an international zone with its products benefiting those countries that had suffered at the hands of the Nazis. The Morgenthau Plan was presented to Winston Churchill at the Second Quebec Conference on September 16, 1944. Churchill yielded to no one in his loathing for the Nazis, but he did have an instinctive understanding of history, and he dismissed this more Baconian repetition of the Treaty of Versailles as, quote, unnatural, unchristian, and unnecessary, unquote. Of course, Britain also had profound connections to uh, the Third Reich. Uh, indeed, the Neville Chamberlain himself, who was generally presented as a dupe, was the uh, basically the protege of Sir Montague Norman, who financed Hitler uh, by uh, via the Bank of England, and uh, again the the, the Connections between British industry and finance and their counterparts in Germany were profound. And skipping ahead of Operation Safe Haven. Operation Safe Haven was implemented on December 6, 1944, with the aim of tracking the movement of Nazi loot and assets around the world and locating those hidden in neutral countries. However, for Roosevelt and Morgenthau, this plan had a wider purpose. They needed concrete evidence of illegality to bring against the major American corporations that had traded with Nazi Germany and those members of a political establishment who were sympathetic to the Nazis. Men such as the crypto-Nazi Henry Ford, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., former U.S. Ambassador to London, and John D. Rockefeller Jr., son of John D. Rockefeller Sr., the founder of Standard Oil, and advocate of eugenics. Some of these corporations and individuals had tried to undermine the New Deal and destabilize Roosevelt's administration during the 1930s. They've also contributed to the 1934 coup plot that we've spoken about in Fulton Record 602 and 448 and AFA Program Number 10. Continuing. This ambitious operation sought the prosecution as war criminals of all those who ran the Nazi war machine and the industrial concerns that sustained it. Bankers and industrialists such as Obbs, Schacht, Schroeder, Krupp, Flick, Flick, Schmitz, and a legion of others were to stand in the dock of an international tribunal and be judged for their actions. Once they were in open court, Morgenthau would reveal years of intercepted documentation, wiretap evidence, and decrypts of Swiss bank codes and cables, courtesy of ultra-intelligence via MI6. In order to redeem themselves, the defendants would have to reveal their dealings with American corporations such as Ford Motor Company, General Motors, and Standard Oil. All of the companies and banks found to have traded with the enemy would then face the full rigor of the law in the U.S. It was an elegant plan for revenge, legitimized by the victory of good over evil on the battlefield. 
Since Morgenthau was distrustful of both the Justice Department and the State Department, Safe Haven was entrusted to a select handful of personnel in the Federal Economic Administration, FEA, of the Treasury Department. The President, through the FEA, instructed a new offshoot of X-2 counterintelligence within the Special Intelligence Division of the OSS to uncover and collect evidence, particularly in neutral countries, concerning the transfer of Nazi loot and gold. That obviously is what we were looking at with Kraby Suisse. Continuing. However, this effort required the cooperation of OSS agents already on the ground, and in Switzerland, this was problematical since one of the suspects of Operation Safe Haven was Alan Bellis himself because of his extensive corporate connections and his links with various Nazi groups. Despite this difficulty, the investigation necessarily focused on the gold dealings undertaken by Swiss banks. This became of major concern to Swiss Ambassador Brugmann once he learned of Operation Safe Haven through his indiscreet brother-in-law, Vice President Henry Wallace. The exposure of the explicit links between Swiss banks and Nazi Germany would be a major potential embarrassment to the Swiss government once the war was over. Accordingly, the Swiss Secret Service alerted Alan Bellis about the safe haven investigation into his affairs. And uh, again, the, 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 it, much of this might appear to be arcane to many members of the listening audience, but it isn't at all. The events that are unfolding in Ukraine, and again, I'm extremely pessimistic, uh, there are so many really ominous developments. There's a major, the largest Air exercise ever conducted by NATO is scheduled for mid-June, mid and late June of this year. Whether that is going to uh, result in something with regard to Ukraine, I can't say, but it's certainly something to be uh, contemplated. There have also been a number of attacks inside Russia, including an alleged, uh, a, a two attacks on nuclear power plants inside of Russia that were foiled by the FSB. And there also has been a report of uh, the blowing up of a repository of nuclear waste uh, in near Kharkov in Ukraine to be blamed on Russia and perhaps used as a pretext to bring NATO into the conflict and basically start World War III. The fact, and the fact that is that the OUNB Nazi successor organizations are in a firm grip, uh, have a firm grip over the organs of national security in Ukraine is not something to be overlooked. So, again, if this seems to be something that was long ago and far away, well, you know, the Swiss bank, you know, it, 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 maybe it did this, maybe it didn't do that. These are very very important events, and they are part and parcel to what is unfolding today. And indeed, in Asia, as the new Cold War against China is taking shape, I strongly suspect that Ferdinand Marcos Jr., a.k.a. Bong Bong, 
who, as we look back in the form of record 1261, was deeply involved in his father's uh, collaboration with uh, Japanese war criminals like Kadama Yoshio and Sasakawa Ruichi and uh, major American and British and Australian banks and the national security establishment itself of this country in uh, recovering the enormous quantities of war loot that was secreted by Japan. And I think that is driving uh, much of the new Cold War in Asia as well. To give people an, uh, some idea of how massive that capital is, just one tunnel in one complex in the Philippines alone, and there were uh, repositories of gold all over Asia. Much of it did find its way back to Japan before the American submarine blockade became more effective. But one tunnel in the Parisa 7 complex had 25 army trucks filled with gold bullion, two 55-gallon drums filled with precious, precious stones, and three large solid gold Buddhas, one three feet, like one meter six or eight feet, and one meter ten or twelve feet. The latter was so heavy that it could only be moved into the tunnel by a push-pull combination of bulldozers. Obviously, the bulldozer that was doing the pulling could not be taken out of the tunnel, so they removed the engine, put more boxes of gold bars in there. They drained the oil out of the the, uh, diesel fuel out of the tank and filled that with precious gems as well. That's just one tunnel in one complex. So the wealth from World War II figures prominently in what is going on today and indeed the Nazi diaspora that is spoken of in this uh, the the New York Times account of this report generated by Mr. Borowski is at the epicenter of events un- unfolding in the world today and I'm afraid that may very well result in World War II World War Three, excuse me, Freudian slip. Again Please check the SpitfireList.com website for the comments made by Parafractal. For those of you who find podcasts to be the best way of consuming for the record, uh, sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record. And there also is a 32 gigabyte flash drive very soon to be updated to include all of the current work, the work I've done on COVID and uh, the work on the Ukraine war. Uh, that is available for a nominal fee, and that and the uh, links for the podcasts are at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post on the left-hand side of the SpitfireList.com website. And again, I got no money whatsoever from that flash drive. This concludes for the record program number 1300, The Collapse of Craby Suisse and the Shadows of Safe Haven, this is being recorded on May 26th of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.